Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we are pleased to have with us our interview with Jonathan Stark. Hey, Ron. Hey, Ed. How's it going? Good. Good week in, uh, here in Texas. Beautiful. We, had, we still had cool weather, which, you know, I love. That's awesome. Well, it's beautiful here. Hey, listen, I'm really excited about this. This is way overdue. I think I've been on Jonathan's uh, podcast two or three times, maybe. And so just thrilled to finally get him on our show and turn the tables on him. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I've only been on once, but my claim to fame is I was episode five. Oh, and okay. I believe if I'm if I'm if I looked at it correctly, I was the first ever guest so I think that's let's, right. Yeah. <laughs> let's wow. uh, let's let's do get the particulars over with Jonathan Stark is a former software developer who is on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He is the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts, the host of Ditching Hourly and the Business of Authority podcasts. He writes daily a daily newsletter on pricing and independent for independent professionals. Welcome, long overdue, to the soul of enterprise, Jonathan Stark. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. Honestly. Well, first, Jonathan, I got to tell you that your sample questions that are on your website basically suck for us because <laughs> <laughs> there's, I'm not going to say what's so bad about hourly billing. I'm not going to ask you that question. Not going to, not going to, we're not going to go there. Yeah. Um, we're going to go right into the love fest por okay. portion of our program uh, since we're all on the same side of this. Uh, I'll, I will give you a chance to talk a little bit about your background, but the first thing I want to ask you is tell me about Fred, the story on your website. Oh, Fred, the develop. Tell me about Fred. Sure. Yeah. That this was my this was what caused my epiphany about hourly billing. Uh, I was the VP of a sort of a boutique software firm. We had about ten developers, uh, anywhere from ten to fifteen. But you know, we build out hourly. It was a blended rate. Everybody was one hundred and fifty bucks an hour. And my job was to um, uh, talk to new prospects and write proposals and then give the, you know, once we landed uh, a gig, I'd give it to a developer and then they would work on it on an hourly basis and so on and so forth. So we paid them salary and, and my whole life was hours. I was doing hours for the estimates. I was, you know, whipping the developers every week to get their hours in. I was sending invoices with timesheets and then I would have eventually have fights about what was on the timesheet and why did it take so long this week. And, and still, even with all of that, even after years of doing that, it never occurred to me to question the way we charged for our services. It just didn't even occur to me. It was like, that's what you did. It was, you know, it wasn't like, should we bill by the hour? It was like, how much should we bill by the hour? So uh, that was the situation I was in when it occurred to me that if, if we were going to lay off an employee, we would have to lay off our best guy, who I call Fred in the article. And, if, and it, instead of laying off our most junior guy, who was practically an intern, uh, who made half as much as Fred, uh, 
but uh, and was really slow and needed to do things over and over again but he had a great bedside manner clients loved him they were perfectly happy and we were printing money with this guy who barely knew his way around the software I mean, we—he he was, you know, he was there to learn, and and that was fine. We were training him, uh, but when it occurred to me that if we were going to let someone go, we'd have to let go of our best guy instead of our most junior guy. I I thought about it for weeks after that. I'm embarrassed to say before it even occurred to me to question uh, the way that we priced our stuff, and if we switched over to you know a fixed price, however you want to calculate, if we switched over to fixed prices, instantly Fred would be our would be our best developer, most profitable developer. It would make sense to pay him a hundred grand a year or whatever it was. Uh, and, and after I saw that, I, I couldn't unsee it. I was like, it's, it's not fair. I mean, it was borderline unethical. It felt to me that we're making more money with someone who wasn't as good. So however you want to look at it, I, I, you know, I brought this epiphany, epiphany, epiphany to my boss and I explained it to him and intellectually he got it. He's like, I see what you're saying, but how would we actually make the transition? And I didn't actually have a good answer for that. I had never done it. I didn't even know what to transition to at that point. I had yet to even hear of value-based pricing, uh, but I knew we needed to stop billing by the hour. Uh, so I, uh, we parted ways. I went solo and, and decided I was gonna figure it out on my own so that I wasn't risking everybody, you know, the livelihood of 10 or 15 people of me like screwing up a transition to something different. So yeah, I went solo in my very first year, I was crushing it. I was making double the amount of money I made before, but more importantly, my quality of life was dramatically, dramatically improved. There's no more tracking time, no more fighting about hours. I just give people a price and stuck to it. Yeah, no more going over estimates, that was the worst. Uh, so I just gave people a price and I stuck to it. And if it took me longer than I expected, that's my problem as the expert, not the customer's problem. They're not an expert at what I do. Why should they be punished? Because I'm bad at estimating. It went great. It, it went great. Yeah. So did you have resistance with some of those early customers who were like, no, no, just give me your hourly rate? No, they love it. <laughs> Uh, and to be fair, to be fair, yeah. I, um, you know, we worked on an arrangement with my, my previous employer where some of the clients came with me. So they knew me, they already ah. trusted me. So I out, had that going for me already, but even subsequent, uh, subsequent, um, engagements, uh, every once in a while I would get leads from like higher ed or government or something where they are literally required to have some kind of hourly rate. And I would just pass on those jobs. But most people, if you're talking to a real economic buyer, they love the idea of a fixed price. They love it. You know, why wouldn't they? I mean, almost nothing you buy in, in your entire life, you don't know the price before you decide to buy it. But with software development, that's not, not normal. It's much more normal to get an estimate and hopefully not go over, but something like 50% of all projects go more than double over the estimate. Yeah, no, I know that's the statistics on that are unbelievable. I remember reading some of the Standish Group stuff on it. All right, so at this point, then you're, you're you would say that you're offering a fixed price. What led you then to the value price? Uh, my my doorway into that whole world was uh, value based fees by Alan Weiss, mm. which was my bible for like five years. I, I mean, my copy of that book has notes in every nook and cranny and crevice. Um, it you know it's it's. I think it's from the 80s, so it, and it's for management consulting, or he was a management consultant. So it, a lot of a lot of things didn't translate, but enough of it did translate um, that I could figure out how to apply the principles to implement them in a software development type of business. 
Um, and it, it definitely took some time. It took me some practice. Um, I think value pricing is almost a performance art. It's, it's certainly, there's certainly some science to it, but it's not as cut and dry as like a formula or something. Uh, so it feels, it feels a lot different. Um, I don't know how much we want to go into the specifics of, of estimating a software project or, or if that's a value, but uh, it definitely takes, it took me time. And I know with my private coaching students, it takes them a long time to shift their mindset from thinking about scope or their cost initially when they're meeting with a prospective client and instead flipping it completely around 180 degrees to think about the value first. And then you create a scope after that so that it's just a real hard thing to get um, an engineering mindset to to switch their thinking uh, that dramatically yeah we talked about the 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 uh, in fact we talked on your podcast about the backward bicycle and the the, the yeah. absolute rethinking that you have to go that goes in, into your mind to to shift okay so but I, what what I wanted to get to though is this so you you've made this transition you've now uh, studied Alan you're Alan Weiss you're doing value based pricing for your software consulting then what led you to the transition to say, you know what I want to do though, is I want to coach other people and bury, help, mm. help Verisage, who I didn't know about at the time, bury the billable hour. Where was that transition? Um, well, yep, I did, I did, after Alan, I went through a lot of Ron stuff. I found Verisage, I found uh, a bunch of, there's, you know, I'm sure names that everyone here uh, listening are familiar with. Um, and the transition point for me came uh, approximately 10 years later was when I really made the leap and I published Hourly Billing is Nuts. Um, but leading up to that, um, around 2009, so you know, s you know, seven years before that, I was speaking at a conference of other software developers. So I was in this community of software developers. Um, when I went solo, I had left a prominent firm to go solo, and so a lot of my colleagues were like, "What are you crazy?" And and I said, "Well, I just had this epiphany about hourly billing. Maybe I am crazy, but I'm going to give this a shot." And I think probably a lot of them were thinking I would come crawling back or it wouldn't work, but it, it actually worked great. And they would follow up with me and ask about it. So after three years of it, um, I was speaking at those to that group of people at those developer conferences about and meetups and things about how I did it because everyone was very curious because everyone hates billing by the hour. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I just started blogging about it. I, I, I spoke at a meetup in Boston and they were asking me a ton of great questions and I couldn't answer them all um, in the time that we had. So I said, I'll tell you what you guys, I will, it was probably 100% guys, um, at the end of, after this is over, for the next few weeks, I'll blog every Monday morning and I'll do another article about um, how I made this work, like how, like what, all the things, so the mechanics of it, what you should actually say in a meeting, um, but also high-level principles and that kind of thing. So starting in 2009, I, I started blogging about that, and um, it just started attracting, you know, the phone just started to ring, or people started to email and say, hey, could you teach me that? Um, and just get more attention than just reading a blog post once a week. So I, I took on a couple of, um, you know, coaching students way back then, just a, uh, as almost a favor, like a side thing. And I still wasn't great at it. It was, it's one thing to be able to execute it yourself. Um, but when I tried to teach it to other people, I, I started to recognize that there are particular things about my personality or, um, or you know, a, actually it is multi, mostly personality that, that made it easier for me to pull off the, the performance art, the value conversation and, and do that. Um, 
and teaching it to someone else who's coming from a different background or maybe has a different skill set or, or a different personality, uh, it was really hard for me to come up with language other than just do it um, <laughs> to, to help them make that transition. So it, it was mildly successful. I'm still in touch with those folks. But uh, in the intervening period, so I, I was al- it was always going as a side thing. Um, just an informal thing. And then finally, all, all of that blogging uh, turned into Hourly Billing is Nuts. And in 2016, I officially you know, decided that I, was, I wasn't learning a lot in, in software anymore. And the new things that were coming out that I could learn, I didn't really want to, like blockchain and, and AI and VR. And I was like, eh, you know, like, let's, you know, this is audio, but my hair is pretty gray at this point. And, and there are kids coming out of college that are that will be better at all of that stuff than I would ever be. So I didn't really want to. I just wasn't interested in in climbing a new ladder, a new tech ladder. So I just made the leap and um, I ramped down the old uh, consulting business and I ramped up the coaching business. All right. Outstanding. Well, that pr- brings us right to our break. want to remind folks that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to our upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow. We lead. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody we're here with the host of the ditching hourly podcast jonathan stark and jonathan i'm curious you know you've been at this for a while as you were talking with ed and you're probably very familiar with the crossing the chasm diffusion curve, the early yes. adapters and all of that. Where do you think your sector is, software developers and all this and the different sectors within that space that you work with? Where do you think they are on that curve? For their 
the way that they price or you mean in general? Yeah, the diffusion of getting rid of the billable hour. I mean, have we, are you still in early adapters? Are you in early majority? What's your feeling? I'd say we're still cutting edge, uh, honestly. Wow. Some of the, yeah, I know. Um, it, it's kind of depressing to think about. I mean, my mission is to rid the world of it and I barely have made a dent in my own industry. But I do see, I, I do see more interest in a variety of spaces. Over time, uh, you know, I've been doing this long enough now that that kind of adjacent types of professions have started to reach out to me. Um, you know, so like designers, web designers, or graphic designers, and marketers, and uh, you know, like digital marketers. So people that are kind of all in that digital new economy space. Um, I don't get, you know, I have a few lawyers and like photographers and stuff and accountants and that sort of thing, but it's, it's, it's more rare. It's more of these like digital native type or not digital natives, but digital, um, professionals. Yeah, I would say, well, let's put it like this. It's still a competitive advantage when you're in a, uh, a bidding process against someone who's billing by the hour. And I'm still at the phase where I'd say the industry is still at a point where, when one of my students goes in to bid on a job, they are the only one that's willing to stand behind a price, which allows them to charge, you know, it's not unusual for their price to be double what the next estimate is. And the client will say to them, like, why should we pay you twice as much as, as them? And, and I tell them to say, well, ask them if they'll stand behind their price or if it's just a ballpark estimate. And if they will stand behind it, you should go with them. If you see no difference between us and them, except for the price, and they'll stand behind it, then go with them. I would too. Um, so, you know, there's a long way of answering that. I, I think there's still plenty of runway for people who are switching over to this approach, which clients do like better. Uh, still plenty of runway for that to be a unique differentiator. That's awesome. We, we try and keep track of that for the different professional sectors. Like I think in accounting, we're actually approaching the early majority. I, I have seen motion in that direction too. I don't really work with any accountants, but I know uh, one of my students does and it does seem to be gaining traction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and law is a little bit slower and of course advertising agencies are really adopting it at a, at a good rate. So it's just interesting. Uh, the, like you were talking with Ed, the unlearning that has to take place is massive. Yeah. It, the, hour, the billable hour is like a cancer throughout your entire firm. Every decision is predicated on this assumption that there's going to be a billable hour at the root of it. So all of your systems and processes and incentives and everything. That's why I'm glad in retrospect that I didn't attempt to, to sort of like transition the firm that I was at when I realized that it was nuts because it would have been, you know, it might've been a success, but we lost the patient kind of situation. Uh, I fear that it would have been too much for me to tackle at that point in time. And it, even today, when I'm, I'm much better at communicating how to do it and all the steps involved, it's still really hard. I, I mostly work with soloists. Uh, all of the the firm type things, where there's maybe a partner and, and you know 20 employees or something like that, it's a much heavier lift because they have to undo lots and lots of. There's a lot more to undo. Right, right. Uh, the other question I want to ask you about this, because it's it, I think this is the real cancer, and that is the timesheet. I mean, we are what we measure, right? And if you're measuring yourself, like you were saying at the first segment, in six-minute increments, and that's what you think you sell, mm-hmm. how do you help or coach your folks to get rid of that timesheet, that measurement? And because there's 
all those yeah. defense. Well, we need it to figure out if we're efficient. We need it for project management. We need it to do this or that. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? It's hard. It, it takes practice. They have to, they, it's like step one is get more leads because you need practice on, on these conversations. I call it the why conversation. Other people call it the value conversation. Um, and for me, it's, I just had a conversation yesterday with a student who's, who's extremely technical engineering mindset. And for, for those sorts, which is mostly what I work with, they are terrified of not having a sense of the cost before giving a fixed price. Because what the, the first kind of step away from hourly billing mentally, even though, even though I talk to them, it's like, we're going we're gonna, to you know, define the su- success metric. What does a home run look like for the client? How is this going to transform their business? And then work backwards from there. They understand it intellectually, but when they go in, they still act like they're going to do a time and materials fixed price quote and they it it, it took me probably a year to completely break this habit of asking about scope and in your head saying okay that's going to take three hours that's probably going to take two hours it's going to be three hours for every one of these tables that i need and and the 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 damage there the real damage there is that they might be telling you to build the wrong thing like you haven't even if you haven't had a conversation about what the success metric is or what's going to satisfy them, just to put it simply, what is going to satisfy them? If you haven't had that conversation, you don't, you shouldn't even know what to build. You shouldn't be solving anything in your mind because you don't know what the big problem is yet. So, you know, it just takes practice. Honestly, uh, I'll role play with them. I will, um, if they're allowed to record the, the calls, I'll listen back to them later and critique it. Um, but it takes practice. It's, it's a performance art. Yeah. Yeah. Accountants have the same problem with the, uh, they've got to know the time because they want to check it after the fact. They've got this fetish about, you know, we projected so many hours and now we want to compare it to actual, actual, and it's, it's crazy. But you had on, uh, so I'm going to go off of the billable hour now, uh, Jonathan, and ask you about this. You had Blair ends on your show on February 9th. It was a terrific discussion about strategy. Mm. You know, all the cliches about, you know, what's the definition of strategy? It's one of those terms that when you ask people and they have to really think about it, they don't really know <laughs> what they mean by strategy. You know, mm-hmm. well, it's knowing what not to do. Well, it means having a plan, having a smart plan, all these things. Yeah. And Blair's favorite strategy or definition was, he's got a weird hobby too, by the way. He yeah. collects definitions of strategy. I thought that was great. We've had Blair on the show. I love Blair. He's great. He's great. really brilliant. Um, but his favorite definition is strategy is um, the idea that describes a journey to a position of advantage. And I thought that was pretty interesting. But you have a very fa- interesting favorite definition. Mm-hmm. What's yours? Yeah. So Here's the thing before we, before I jump into that because mine's long and it's it's longer than the the songwriter in me likes like I like things to be a little bit more concise and like you know boom 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 like rhythm to it. My definition is kind of long, and but there's a really specific reason for it because I think the one that you just shared from Blair is right, but it's not helpful. I don't find it to be helpful. I think it's right, but I don't think it's helpful. So I have sort of a long definition that I think is correct and helpful to someone who's trying to get their head around what strategy is so they can start selling it so they can start selling their brains instead of selling their hands stop thinking about the labor and start thinking about the transformation you know if you if you want to sell strategy which is something i try and help people do 
you need to understand what it is first. So my definition is that strategy is a concise, high-level approach to achieving an objective by playing strengths against weaknesses in an unexpected way. And I know that's a giant mouthful, but I've tried so hard to cut any single word out of there and I can't without it losing an important descriptive character. I love that definition and I especially like the surprise. Uh, and, and Blair even alluded to this on the conversation with you, but it was, you know, there is a, uh, it comes from George Gilder, it's the information theory of capitalism, which is information equals surprise, <laughs> right? Creativity and innovation <laughs> always takes us by surprise. And that's why that definition is so great. And we've had on Rory Sutherland in his book, Alchemy, he talks about, you know, if your strategy doesn't have an element of surprise, it's kind of worthless. Mm -hmm. You know, he compares it to the military. You've got to have an element of surprise. Otherwise, the enemy knows what you're up to. Yeah, I do. I've discussed that surprise piece uh, with my mailing list of like thousands of people on this daily mailing list. And I talked about strategy a lot around the time of that episode. And I got some pushback about the surprise piece. And I, I, I don't want to qualify it really, but there is an argument to be made that if the objective is small or if it's an infinite game situation where there's no winner and loser, it's just an objective that you want to get to, then the surprise might not come into play as much or be as important versus an extremely high stakes winner take all situation where I think it is absolutely critical. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's really hard because of all these definitions, like you say, many of them are not helpful. And then when you start parsing the ones even that you like, you, if you run into these these walls, I'll give you mine. And it comes from Jules Goddard. Uh, he wrote a book called Uncommon Sense, Common Nonsense, um, management professor out of the UK. And I just, I love this because it speaks to me. Get your take on it. Strategy is the rare and precious skill of staying one step ahead of the need to be efficient. That's interesting. What I love about that is it bakes in innovation. But like you said, if that's not the goal, if your goal is to maybe be low cost leader, whatever, mm -hmm. it, but, but you know, I think this uh, strive to be efficient is an innovation destroyer. I mean, innovation, creativity is the antithesis. Yeah, Blair's, you know, not to name check Blair again, but, but um, <laughs> he, he was the first one, I think it was an article on his blog, uh, where he said that uh, you can't optimize creativity. They're the opposites, like they're opposite ends of the spectrum. So whether it's innovation or whatever, like you can't optimize it. It's optimization comes later and it's not creative. It's, it's, it's after the creative act. So, and I also, while we're name checking people, I, I hasten to mention that the definition of strategy that I use is, is largely learned from uh, Richard Rumelt in his mm. excellent book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. Yeah. A bit dense, but yeah, good. It was a thought provoking book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've only got about a minute, but I got to ask you about this too. Pricers have a, I think a pretty interesting saying, innovate for growth, price for profit. How do you think and advise your customers around innovation? Is that, and I'm not just talking about you know the new iPhone. I'm talking about innovation broadly. Mm -hmm. How do you think about it? For for my students who are uh, innovating in their own business, it's. I mean, this is going to sound like a cop out, but it's so easy to innovate. It, it's not. It's almost not even innovative. You know, there's like 
this the industry is so commoditized and static at this point you know software development that that simply adding like a subscription service or some kind of um you know one-off strategy workshop or or software architecture workshop it comes across as innovative because just nobody does it uh, so I honestly, I, I am a huge, huge fan of innovation. I think it's super important, but it's just it's really easy to be innovative in software at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, that's been my experience too. And just, you know, we always talk about you can innovate your language, you can innovate your sales approach, the questions you ask, you know, your why conversation mm -hmm. can be part of massive innovation. So Jonathan, this is great. It's flying by, folks. We'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out our show at patreon.com slash tsoe, where you can subscribe and get our bonus episodes. That Patreon channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds are better than one. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are inspiring people today by talking to Jonathan Stark, who is the host of the Ditching Hourly and the Business of Authority podcasts. Uh, Jonathan, I want to throw you a, a, a change up here. Ron said he threw you a curveball during the break. I want to throw you a, a change up. I'm a bit, big baseball guy. What are your thoughts on subscription pricing? A uh, huge fan, huge fan. And if you know, to to keep talking about innovation for a second, I think that I think that that is. I mean, I don't want to, you know, it's not a silver bullet. It's not one size fits all and it's, it's a perfect fit for everything, but that's the direction I'm going, you know? So for whatever that's worth, I think, um, the subscription arrangements are just becoming super normal. It's like not something that is, seems strange in any way. 
uh, where before it used to be really strange. It was really strange. I can remember. I mean, I have a. I went to music school. I have a music background, and you know, at the time in our, you know, flop house basically that <laughs> me and my band lived in, it was wall to wall records. You know, LPs like you needed like a moving truck and, and a bunch of buff dudes to like move that stuff. It was like tons of physical just matter atoms everywhere and the idea of not owning your record was crazy i couldn't even imagine that and now i can't imagine having one (laughs) it's it's i mean even buying an mp3 seems silly now you know it's just comical why would you like why would you just subscribe to it well, and the reason why I wanted to ask you about that is because of the nature of the the, the customers that you have, which is mm-hmm. software development. And oftentimes, this is what I hear from, uh, I'm, I'm in an adjacent space, software implementation, but then we do have partners at Sage who also do custom development work as well. But the he- thing I hear from them is, this is a one-off thing. This is it's just a one-off thing. They, we can't have them, so they can't say, we're not going to subscribe to me to, to do just this one-off project. What's, what's your reaction to that? I think that's the lack of <laughs> lack of creativity, I guess. Um, I, for for years, so I did when I first went solo, two thousand six. I was still doing hands work, labor, writing code, and I slowly took on. Uh, over time, I started to attract. I became well known for a very specific area in software development, specifically. Um, building mobile websites that worked on phones because the iPhone became, it came out in 2007, but it became really big in business minds around 2010. And in January, 2010, I had a a really popular, a book published that became very popular, translated into seven languages about exactly that. So I, you know, I just, the timing was amazing. It was just perfect. And I became very well known for anybody who wanted their desktop, ugly desktop website to look good on a phone. And at that time, I was speaking a lot and I was, you know, I had that book and I was doing a speaking tour for the book and people were just coming up to me. Like I'd get off stage and like people would mob me and half of them had suits on, which was a good sign. So, you know, it, it, it happened more than once that someone said, let's, let's go right now. Here's my card. I, we need to talk. We want to ask you, basically get your advice about this big thing that we've got going on. And at that time, I started shifting uh, into advisory retainers, which is a form of a subscription where uh, clients pay monthly for access to your expertise. You know, so it's just like a you know a lawyer or an accountant or you know whatever somebody who you or a doctor. Like I have a concierge doctor. It's the same idea. It's an insurance policy where they've got some risk that they're faced. It's usually in in my case, it was usually a big bet the business project that was going to cost a lot, you know, million at least. And they wanted someone who knew what was up, someone who was cutting edge on this new technology to be in the room or have access to me. I, I should not, I meant figuratively. I wasn't ever, hardly ever actually in a room, but, um, you know, have access to me to ask me questions, give them advice, help them design an architecture, come up with a migration plan, uh, pick an approach. I mean, there are lots of different ways to migrate a desktop site to a mobile site. There's, there were like three different ways to do it. It was, there were landmines everywhere. It was really easy to blow your foot off. So it made sense to pay me 10 grand a month to pick up the phone when they called so that they didn't waste hundreds of thousands of dollars down the road with a failed implementation or having to change gears very late in the game. 
and that was that was my you know after let's see what was it uh, 2010 i think from 2000 and if I, I can't even remember but for years and years i just had two or three retainer clients paid me five figures a month for me to pick up the phone and occasionally i you know for different clients sometimes i had to fly somewhere once in a while but it was mostly just uh phone support so it's it's amazing it's great it's like it's great for them it's great for me it's the perfect marriage of taking something that's easy for you to do because it was all trivial for me like i just knew the answer and and because i had spent all this you know i spent years building up the expertise so now i just knew the answer to any question they could come up with or i could ask them a few follow-up questions and and say well it depends but you should probably do you know of a b and c you should probably do b for these reasons and it's easy for me and it's super valuable to them because the downside was so high so it's a perfect marriage of low cost for the seller high value for the buyer so you can set a price like anywhere in the middle and have t very very win-win relationship for profitable uh, exchange for both parties and they would just have 24 7 access to me ask as many questions as they want for as long as they want and when they stopped needing me when the you know usually what would happen is a year and a half two three years later because these are big projects when it finally launched or finished or they declared victory on it then we would part ways but i mean yeah it's it's great but you need to be a recognized expert well so so that's that's what i want to talk to you about are you are you advising the people that you work with now to try to adopt a subscription model to them where possible and and if so what has been the reaction from the people who you're working with um i customize my recommendations based on people's situations there's pros and cons to it some of the problems with so it's not a great fit for everyone because the subscription thing can turn into a little bit of a content treadmill if you're just i mostly work with soloists like i said so if you're not already in the habit of creating loads of content the subscription thing well i advise everybody to try and do advisory retainers which is a specific kind of subscription thing but the, the subscription things that are getting more interesting to me and i'm not sure which ones of my students would make a good fit for are more like membership communities and uh and kind of like netflix but for a specific thing sorts of models and I have a couple of students who do that, and um, and it's got pros and cons. The recurring revenue is amazing. Being able to predict, you know, knowing your churn rate and knowing your burn and like how far out you can plan things, it's it's amazing in that regard. You're not you're not you know you're not chasing clients and doing. They basically don't do sales at all. You know, it's more like they just go out and 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 do content marketing, which they love doing anyway. And then people sign up for, you know, this sort of Netflix for coding, and you know. They have that but it's it's not a great fit for everyone but i suppose there are there are kinds of subscription models that i'm not even thinking of yet uh for me but those are the two big ones i think advisory retainers i would recommend anybody do if you're recognized as an expert the go-to person for something you should be selling that you'll be very happy you'll be shocked how much money people will pay to have you know very quick access to an expert for something that they really really need to know about uh, but then the and then the other subscription models basically membership communities and info products and those sorts of things uh, it's it's a very different kind of lifestyle for for and a lot of my people it really wouldn't be a great fit because they're more it's just not a great fit for everybody but maybe there are other kinds of subscriptions that i'm not considering that that might be 
Well, uh, th- thanks for that. Just uh, you give me a quick introduction to the fact that, that Ron and I are just relaunching our Patreon site with additional subscriptions. So <laughs> that was the that was a great tie-in. And I wanted to ask you this: I was uh, poking around your website preparing. Are you going to move some of the stuff that you have right now as this one-off, which includes your book? You have three levels of buying your book, and mm-hmm. there's some uh, co- content. Are you going to move yourself to a subscription model um, on this, the sites that you offer now? That is a strategy I am considering for 2021, 100%. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm modeling the pricing structure of all of that. I would much rather do that. Um, but it, again, it's a personality thing. You know, I, I offer three different workshops. And I hate doing launches. I just don't like doing launches. Um, so I would much rather have that stuff be available for to a community that could um, take it at their own pace with a cohort. And not ha- I don't need to be, I mean, I'd be in the community and they can still ask me questions. So it would be very similar because the way I do my online workshops, there is a community aspect. It's not just a bunch of videos you download and watch in your basement. I, I just, those are... The completion rate on those isn't good enough for me. I, I, I like to. I want people to actually move forward. I want to. I want this mission to succeed, and and I want to be there to um, guide them a little bit, but to get support from a community. So I really like that model. I I first saw it with the Akimbo stuff that Seth Godin was doing. Um, it's an amazing model, and I'm looking for a way to kind of take this. You know, the pricing seminar that I offer is uh, it's basically. 12 weeks, however many months that is, four months, three months, and uh, and the community stays open for three months after that. So it's almost like a six-month community, and I'm like, and I launch it twice a year. So I'm like, why don't I just leave it open, you know, because it, it takes the whole year to do two of them. Why don't I just leave it open and just charge for access to the community and then let other people in? So, you know, but but the subscription, the subscription thing uh I you have I have to be I have to really figure out the numbers because I don't want it to cannibalize the one-off sales and it will so I need to come up with a a, a, a tier or a level where um, it continues to at least make the same amount of money and then the lifestyle change is really what I'm going for so I don't have to do launches I can systematize more things and I can decrease my costs of offering those things. And then it puts a, a strong financial incentive on me to keep creating new courses, spend that time I would have spent doing a two-week launch, and make a new course, and then make it free or, or at a discount to the community. So for me, it's a great fit because I'm already on a content treadmill. I write every single day. So that doesn't scare me. I love it. Uh, yeah, you, if you haven't read Teen So's book, subscribed, highly recommend it. He's been a guest on our show. Recommend that 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 show as well. He, what you're describing is what he calls swallowing the fish. Swallowing <laughs> the fish. It's because it's the fish is, of course, this graph that happens when your expenses go up and your revenue potentially goes down at the same time. So it exactly. looks like, and then they yeah. cross somewhere in the future. But you want that future to be as quickly as possible. That that's where I am right now. I'm, yeah, I'm figuring out go. the fish. I'm figuring fish, out. The you're, fish. you're figuring out how to swallow the fish. Well, that's yep. that's great stuff. So, well, <laughs> we're up against our last break to get a hold of Ron or me. The email address is, of course, ask tsoe at verisage.com. Mention Patreon com slash tsoe go and visit our new updated tiers we'd love to have you as part of our community there but uh, and also remember about 90 minds ron talked to them about it but now a word from our sponsor and my employer sage 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Jonathan Stark of the Ditching Hourly Podcast, which I highly recommend, by the way. You put out great content nice. on, that, uh, on that show, Jonathan, every week. It's really good. Even your short little three-minute ones are... Yeah incredibly thought-provoking so I, I congratulate you it's just a great job Thanks. um the late andy grove founder of intel said disruptive threats come inherently not from new technology but from new business models how do you deal with business model innovation in your coaching i mean i know we think you know with if like i work with a lot of accountants and i think well we only have one business model that's not necessarily true we have a range that we can pick from how do you deal with business models you know it's it's something i think of i i think i don't have to think about it that much because i attract a particular kind of person so they've got a kind of skill that is very similar from person to person and really it's uncommon there's really only two kinds that that i've done honestly um i'm it's virtually always someone who's been billing by the hour to do stuff write code sometimes copyrighted me marketing people are writing copy or whatever but almost always what what we're going to do is create a product ladder or an offering ladder you could call it that is sort of order of magnitude pricing so someone new will come in and i'll be like okay we want, by the end of this four-month coaching program, I want you to have an MVP, minimum viable product ladder, where you've got something. Some people will have their, their bottom rung will be like 50 bucks. Their next tier up will be 500 bucks. The next one up will be 5,000 bucks. And the next one up will be 50,000 bucks. So that $50,000 one, that's what I'd call the helicopter option. Well, you know, the most expensive way to travel from Boston to Providence is a helicopter. So the 50,000 plus 
rung at the top of the product letter is what they're already selling. They're going to be custom projects that are priced, hopefully value priced, above you know minimum fifty thousand and up. The five thousand area would be generically referred to as like a roadmap. So it'd be some sort of engagement with uh, a, a client, their client who is in a current state. They want to transform to a desired future state and they don't know how to get from A to B, but they do believe that my student has that information. So they want, they'll come to my student for like a, I don't know if it's dates me, but like a, a AAA triptych where it's like a, a, a deliverable of how to get from A to B. Now the student's not going to get them from A to B. It's just the map of how to get from A to B. And you can usually sell that for like 5,000 bucks. Like the people that come to me can usually sell that for, you know, low, low to mid four figures. Down in the $500 range, I'll say, what could we sell? What, how could we package up your expertise to sell it for 500 bucks? That usually looks like a self-paced video course. It could be um, a one-off phone call if they're already well known as like an, an advisory way. If they're an expert, it could just be a 500 bucks for a phone call. But I'm looking for something that uh, they could sell, be happy to sell for $500 and then down to the $50 range, be some kind of info product like a book or a, maybe a, uh, a shorter course or something like that. So the, the model, if, the, if you want to call that the business model, I basically they come to me and I want them to create a product ladder where uh, clients or leads, prospects can, can jump on the ladder at whatever price point they want based on how much trust they have in the seller. So if the seller is really well known, um, you know, maybe we have to jack all those prices up by, you know, a factor of two because they're getting like loads of, they, in other words, they're leaving money on the table. Um, or we might have to jack them down, you know, cut them in half because the person's not well known or they're, you know, they've only got four years of experience or something and they've, you know, no one knows who they are. So there's not as much trust in the market. Uh, and then, so we've, we've got these things, they're all fixed price. There's not an hourly thing in there. So they start to feel um, this, they start to feel profits for the first time ever. And the and uh, I have seen that people quickly realize that that top rung is like a kind of work they don't even want to do anymore. And they just take it off once the other things lower down the ladder are selling in higher volume. So they just do roadmaps, like roadmap is the biggest thing they do or like an innovation workshop or, you know, some like one day thing uh, or half a day thing that they have, they've got these people climbing up the ladder, lots of people by the first rung, some of them by the second rung and some of them by the third rung and they work their way up. As you deliver value at each rung of the ladder, they keep climbing up it. Uh, you know, a, a portion of them will keep climbing up it because, you know, if I give you, if I give you a dollar, you give me $2 back, I'm going to be giving you dollars all day long. <laughs> Right, right. No, that's great. Um, you, you know, you've probably heard about the firm Pilot, which is a accounting firm that Jeff Bezos' family office recently invested $300 million in, along with some other venture capitalists. That puts that valuation of that accounting firm with about a thousand customers at $1.2 billion, with a B, dollars. That yeah. makes them the eighth largest accounting firm in the country, because mm -hmm. most accounting firms are valued at one times revenue. Okay. It, it, so it's just, I know you had John Warlow on your show talking yes. about built to sell. We had yes. him on to talk about the automatic customer, which is his subscription book, right, right. which I also recommend highly. I just read it. <laughs> yeah, it it's really good. Um, but boy, what, what that tells me, Jonathan, even if you don't want to sell your business, 
the market is kind of screaming at businesses, hey, we value businesses that have annual recurring revenue at much higher multiples mm -hmm. than even value pricing. Yeah, I, I'm one of those I'm going to die with my boots on types like like Blair, who we mentioned earlier. Um, and, and he but he convinced me when John came on the show, he convinced me that it's worth doing all the things that would make your business valuable to a buyer because you're the owner. It's like you bought it, you know, that's right. So I was like, oh, wow, I never thought about it like that. Um, and it makes perfect sense. And I, I do have I have some monthly recurring revenue and I love it. It's like my favorite you know, of the, of the dollars that come in every month, that's my favorite. Um, for not, not because it's easy, but because that's the, the style. It's the way I like to work. It, it allows me to focus on just the things that I feel really good at and not have to worry about things like launches or having a sales interview or doing a why conversation with somebody or, you know, whatever, you know, reviewing private coaching applications that's not providing value to anybody. It's just part of the sales process that I'd rather not spend time on. So if I could just write all day long and create videos and come on great shows like this, I, that would be, that's dream, <laughs> dream life for me. So it's a perfect fit for me. So if I can swallow that fish, maybe in 2022, it'll look more like that. Oh, you can. You can swallow the fish. Um, we, we're finding the fish to be more like a minnow in a lot of professional <laughs> firms than a big than a big marlin or something. Uh -huh. Um Real quick, we've only got about four minutes left, but mm -hmm. you have a concierge doctor. One of the reasons I came on your show, because I think that is the model for like accountants and lawyers going forward. Tell, tell me about that experience. I, I, and I want the psychological reasons that mm -hmm. you see incredible value, because those are the hardest to get on a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I actually lived around the corner from my doctor. He's on the next block over. And about two years ago, a for sale sign went up on his front lawn and I freaked out. I was like, no, don't move away. <laughs> I'll buy your house. Fortunately, he moved just across town and wasn't closing his practice. But I was, I was really upset. And so, okay, so that's, that's like just one little story, emotional story. I only talked to that, the doctor. I have an annual physical and that's it. I have seen him off schedule. So like in addition to the annual visit, I've seen him twice in 10 years, but the feeling of him moving away and me having to find another arrangement that's as amazing as this one was, I was horrified. I was like, please no. And fortunately, like I said, he'd stayed. So, you know, it's all about, I mean, it sounds when I was younger and you'd hear like ads for a good, good peace of mind with all state insurance, I was like, that's stupid. Like that is just a made up marketing BS. But now that I'm 52 or whatever I am now, that's a real thing. <laughs> right, right. It, sounds, it sounds silly to say, but that is a real thing. And knowing that I could take a picture of a, a rash or a bug bite or a cut or something and just text it to him and be like, should I worry about this? Do I need to come in? And he'd be like, no, 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 just, you know, put a bandaid on it or whatever, or even my kids, if something happens to one of my kids and they're not even covered under it, but he's, but that's, it's the concierge nature of it. You know, something, yeah. uh, he smashed his head. What should I do? Well, maybe take him to the emergency room, but I wouldn't worry too much. Like them telling him, telling me how much to worry is worth the 15 bucks a year I pay him. Yeah. 
Well, that's awesome. Well, Jonathan, unfortunately, we're at the end, and we really want to thank you for coming on. It's been an honor to have you on here. Keep up the great work over at Ditching Hourly. Ed, what's on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we have John Tamney, author of They're Both Wrong. (laughs) Yes, and When Politicians Panicked. So looking forward to that. I'll see you in 167 hours. Thanks, guys. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. We'll see you next week at Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.